I call your attention this morning to Psalm 22. That is the reason why we changed the morning psalm, the last one there, to this. I would like to read verses 1 through 8, and then verse 6 will be my text. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 8. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man. A reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Again, my text is verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. One has called this psalm the gospel according to David. Luther calls this psalm a kind of gem among the psalms, and is peculiarly excellent and remarkable. And that it is. And as we look at this psalm, we may ask, of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself or some other man? Well, it's so plain from the New Testament that it is in reality a prophecy of Jesus Christ. While David spoke and penned these words, and while he may have felt in some measure some of the pains and the agonies that are recorded here, yet he speaks of the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And much of what the prophet David speaks by the Holy Ghost here does refer to Christ Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, suffering for the sins of his people. And we can see from this psalm several passages actually quoted as the very sayings of our Lord Jesus on the cross as He was crucified for sinners. As well as there are some statements regarding the crucifixion and that are backed up, as we would say, or concluded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. For instance, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? We know that Matthew records this for us in his account of our Lord Jesus, whom it is Christ himself. says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. In verses 7 and 8, which we read in your hearing this morning, that too is confirmed to us by the evangelist Mark, as he's called there in chapter 15 and verse 29. And they passed by, railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou destroyest the temples and build it in three days. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. That was the wicked men the Jews who had Him crucified, speaking of our Lord Jesus. In verse 18, we see also, He says, "...they they parted My garments among them and cast lots upon My vesture." In John 19, verse 24, we see that our Lord Jesus fulfilled that prophecy to the T. In verse 16, "...for dogs have compassed Me..." The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Here again, we know that these are direct 
words spoken of our Lord in the Gospels in regards to Jesus being crucified. Verse 15, he says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth. Most certainly, this speaks of the effects upon him at the crucifixion and by the crucifixion. So as we'll be opening up our text this morning, I am very confident that verse 6, it is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking here. But I am a worm and no man. Now, as we look to this text, I want us to realize there are several things we must keep in mind as we look to verse 6. I'm going to go through these and uh, try to show you these in some extent. But again, these things have to be kept in mind. This will show us something of the backdrop, something of the background, something of the glory of what our Lord did and suffered for us. If we keep these things in mind. The first one is this. Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, is the Son of God. Just as the Roman soldier testified, truly this is the Son of God. Truly it is. The person who is speaking here in our text is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is God the Son. And as such, He possesses full deity. He is truly Fully and completely God. John records for us in his account in John 1, 1 and verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You see, He is God. Secondly, we must keep in our mind the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, also came though and assumed human form. He is not suffering at this time or at that time on the cross as God only. He is suffering as the Son of Man. God in human form. He who was God and is God was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And He was born into this world. He assumed or was clothed upon Himself in human flesh. And He took upon Himself, the Scripture tells us as we read the other day, the seed of Abraham. John again tells us, and the Word, that same Word that was in the beginning, who was God, He says. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word, excuse me, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It goes on to say several things about Him. When He was sent into this world and He took upon Himself human flesh, He did not cease to become or cease to be God. He still was God. He was the God-man. And He was and now is both God and man in one person. And He will be forever. And He has that reasonable soul, as the Catechism says. The third valuable and necessary truth that we must remember is that His state here upon the earth as the God-man, as the Mediator, and when He first came, was one of humiliation. He humbled Himself when He came. He who was God came to be a man. And He lived as a man, suffering the hardships that came by consequence of the fall of Adam. Not that he sinned or ever did sin. He was sinless and spotless. But he took upon him also the effects of sin into this world, the hardships, 
the hunger, the tiredness, yea, even death itself became His. Paul records this, Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So when He came the first time, He came in a state of humiliation. He came and He carried our sorrows and our afflictions. He bore our sins, the Scripture teaches us, upon Himself. Our sins were laid to His account. He was imputed as a sinner because sin was imputed to Him. They were put to His account. Again, Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And when He was punished by both man and God, it was so for our sins. My sins. Your sins, Christian. He who was sinless, He who nonetheless was made sin for us. Why did He do that? To redeem us. To forgive us. To bring reconciliation. To bring forgiveness to sinners and a perfect righteousness that we could never attain to by our law-keeping. And upon the cross, there He suffered, bled, and He died. Paul again tells us, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Scripture says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And in all of this, God, man, Jesus Christ, settled the sin question. God Himself, who was offended by wicked sinners such as us, was satisfied, he was appeased, and he was propitiated completely and wholly through the death of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then the fourth necessary thing we ought to keep in mind this morning as we come to our text is that on the third day, our glorious Lord Jesus, who was our sin-bearer, arose from the dead, being loosened, as Peter says, from the bands of death. And He's now seated at God's right hand, being both made both Lord and Christ. Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And this shows us that God was satisfied with that offering of Christ. Now, with those things in our thinking this morning, with those things embedded in our memory, let us go then to our text. Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, 
a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Now, our text this morning that we are hoping to open up does assume the truths that I have already set forth just a few moments ago regarding the something in particular of the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. The words that are spoken here in verse 6 are the words, I believe, though they're not recorded for us in the New Testament, but nonetheless, as we see that this is a psalm or a prophecy of Christ, it is something that He spoke during His crucifixion. And it is here He cries out, though it's not recorded for us in the New Testament, it is recorded for us here, He cries out, but I am a worm and no man. So in this, I'd like to first notice that this statement of our Lord Jesus is made as a contrast in the context. Look down if you would at it. But I am a worm and no man. Notice the conjunction there, but. In fact, I noted yesterday, but really I see now it's the third contrast thus far in our Lord's crying out to His heavenly Father here. One of them in particular is found in verse 3, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. And what's that contrast for? Well, if you'll notice, he's crying out in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that time when our Lord Jesus was forsaken of him by his Father, he rectifies his Father in this. He says, you are right, you are just, and you are holy in doing it. But thou art holy. When our sins were imputed to Jesus, and God the Father had to punish Him for our sins, that became His. Jesus says, Thou art holy in doing so. Then we see the other contrast that's in verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. This relates to what he had just said in verse 4 and 5. Notice this very carefully. This is our Lord Jesus speaking to His Father. Our fathers trusted in Thee. They trusted and Thou didst deliver them. They cried unto Thee and were delivered. They trusted in Thee and were not confounded. Our Lord, notice what He's doing here. As He speaks to His Father, He says, Lord, I recognize here the faith of our fathers. Our fathers did trust in You in the day of trouble. Our Jewish fathers, my Jewish fathers. Remember, He was of the seed of Judah. My fathers in the flesh who trusted in God. When they cried out to you, they were heard. You delivered them. The many times that they went to you and they cried unto you, you had mercy upon them. You were gracious and you delivered them out of the hands of those who oppressed them. They cried unto thee, verse 5, and were delivered. They trusted in you and they weren't ashamed. They weren't confounded. They believed that when they cried, they would be heard, and you heard them. That's what he means in verses 4 and 5. Brethren, look at verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. Notice that. But, he says... Though they trusted in you, they were not confounded. You heard them. And in fact, they cried to you and you delivered them. But I am a worm and no man. Do you see the connection? Do you see the reason for the conjunction there? But it's a very important point in the sufferings and in the agonies and in the crying out of Jesus to His Father, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? 
You delivered others. You delivered those of my own flesh. But I am a worm and no man. You would think this would have brought pity from his hearer, from those who heard him. Instead of the mockings and the jabbings and the terrible things they were doing to him, they would have fell down on their knees and said, God be true and every man a liar. Your son has been forsaken. But instead, as we see in verse 7 and 8, they laugh at him. They scorn him. They shoot out the lip. We would say they stuck out their tongues at him and mocking. But I am a worm and no man. That's the setting of our text. Now let me again make four mention here, mention of four things in regards to this context that we have to again have in our thinking now as well. First of all, when we speak of this text, he is on the cross suffering for the sins of his people. When he says, but I am a worm and no man, he is suffering. Secondly, he is crying out to his God. My God, my God, but I am a worm and no man. From verse 3, we actually see though that he justifies God in all of this treatment towards him. All of this treatment that he receives from both God and man, he justifies God. And then fourthly, we saw him speaking historically as a truth of Israel's deliverance. These are four things in the immediate context. And then he says, but I am a worm and no man. The second thing we should see here is that now by these words, he is speaking though metaphorically or as a figure. When he says, I am a worm, we should not understand here, we should not assume that he took upon him the real nature of a worm. So children, when... Jesus says here, I am a worm. He doesn't mean that there was this little wiggly thing hanging on the cross. He doesn't mean that at all. Or when he says here that I am no man, that he suddenly didn't, he wasn't a man any longer. Again, Jesus was not a real worm, yet he was a real man. He didn't take upon himself wormhood. He took upon Himself manhood. He took upon Himself our humanity. If He really did take upon Himself the nature of a worm, that would contradict a lot of passages, wouldn't it? It's not Jesus the worm who died for us. It's Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Man, who died for us. So in summary then, he's speaking of this as a figure. The Bible is full of that. But in that figure though, he's trying to show us some very real things about a worm. So what, thirdly then, what is this figurative statement referring to? I think he gives us the answer in the very text itself. In the last part of verse 6. He says he's a worm and no man, and he explains it. A reproach of men and despised of the people. As a worm, he is seen then as a reproach of men and despised of the people. The language then he's using here is referring and is responding to the awful treatment he's receiving from the onlookers on the day of his crucifixion. 
Again, verses 7 and 8, as we mentioned, and they see, they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighteth or delighted in him. That's words of mockery, scorn, sarcasm. And as you know, these things are recorded for us in the gospel so we know that it's referring to Jesus Christ. So when he says here, but I am a worm and no man, it's referring to the vileness and the mockings that he endured by the wicked men before him. Both the Jews and the Romans who despised him. The scripture says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was a worm and no man. God's wrath and God's anger was against him. As God, who was his father, had for a moment turned his back upon him, forsaking him, as he cries out there in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he is, as he is forsaken, of God. They mock Him. The Scripture says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I think sometimes we misunderstand that thing. Well, that's right. He's accursed of God. But that's not all that means there in that text. When a man was hung on a tree, it was a sure sign of, of an evidence that this man was wicked. This man deserved the vile mockings of all. He is a, truly accursed of God, but as well, he is accursed of man. And so men would naturally then make fun of him and curse him and vile, say vile things against him. They would stick out their tongue against him, shoot out the lip, shake their head at him, make fun of him. It was a visible reminder that they had an accursed one before them. You see, he's a worm. Less than a man before them. He's trodden underfoot by men as if he was a worm. Ready to be crushed. Lamentations 3.30 says, He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was a worm and no man. Now I want us to further look at this figure that our Lord Jesus uses here. And I want us to consider something of the nature of a worm. And I want us to look at it from the scriptural standpoint. Because the Word of God does have some things to say about a worm. So for these things I want to bring out, I want to take them from the Scripture to show us something of the reproach, something of the pain, the shame, and the rejection of our Lord Jesus, which He experienced there on the cross as a worm and no man. So what does the Bible have to say about a worm? Well, first of all, when we think of what the Bible says and even what we think in nature, just what we know about worms, we don't think a whole lot about them, do we? They're just worms. Now, I realize children get a little fascinated with those things and that sort of thing. But as adults, when we grow out of things and we put things away that normally would excite us when we're little and when we're children, we just don't give a whole lot of thought about worms unless our jobs have something to do with worms. Our daily tasks with worms. Worms, you know, are of the lowest nature. They're down there on the ground. Insignificant little creatures. Not much thought about them. 
They're little bitty creatures. They're slimy. They're gross. You look at them, they're not very pretty. I remember in school, when I was in college, uh, I had a class called zoology. At the time, they called it zoology, and I think it even changed. And so I don't know the proper way of saying zoology any longer because it has changed so much even when I was in school, how to say that term. But that class I took, we had to dissect or dissect. That was another word that changed on us in school. We had to dissect a worm. And the purpose of dissecting that worm is because it was of the lowest form that we could get our hands on and cut open and to be able to examine some of its or the lack of its bodily parts. It didn't have arms. It didn't have legs, the one we did. And we would just, we dissected it right down the middle and we laid it open with pins and then we would examine the very things that made up on the inside of that worm. I assure you, there wasn't much to it. There's not much to a worm. It's a low creature. And as Christ assumed our nature, He assumed something of a very low position. He became a man. What is man? that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist says. Showing us there, there is just something not quite right, quite not up to speed with man as a creature. But Jesus says here, I am a worm and no man. Not only that, he assumed, no, he did not assume sinfulness He assumed a fallen man. A man who is subject to the pain and the sorrows and the degradation. Yea, even to death itself. Again, he didn't assume a sinful nature. Neither did he do any sin. Yet, nonetheless, he became a man. Not a very flattering statement. In fact, Isaiah says you could take all of men, even the greatest of men, and you put them on a balance. You put them on one side and you put dust on the other and there ain't nothing there. That's what man is. Again, you take all the great people there are, little, small, doesn't matter, you put them in a bucket and they're just like a drop, he says. That is what the Lord of glory came to be. Yea, even further, He became a worm and no man. And this He did freely. He assumed this nature freely. He freely, without cause, entered into that engagement to become a man. And then knowing what would happen to him as a man. That the very creatures he has created would one day rebel against him. Yea, would crucify him. And before that would mock him. Yet that's what he became. Job 25, 6 says, How much less man than a worm and the son of man which is a worm. So the scripture tells us there's just not much to a worm and that our Lord assumed. Secondly, a worm speaks of decay, dying, and corruption, and death. The grave. It is in the grave that the worms feed upon us. Not a very pleasant thing to think about, is it? That when we're laid into the grave, and as time goes by, the worms get in, and they eat you to your nothing but dust 
out of the other end of the worm. Right. You're digested in that worm. I saw it. I saw the digestive system of that worm which I dissected in school. And there we will be turned into dung and dust. Not a very pleasant thing to think about, is it? Those of us who want to glory in self-respect and self-esteem think that one day you will be nothing but food for the worms. And then you'll go out in the drought, as Jesus said. Isn't that something? It speaks of the grave. Job 24.20 says, The womb shall forget him. The worm shall feed sweetly on him. He shall be no more remembered. And wickedness shall be broken as a tree. What will the worms do? They will eat you. They will feed on you sweetly, he says. Job 17:14. I have said to corruption, thou art my father, to the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. Decay. Spoiling. Corruption. Isaiah 51, verse 8, For the moth shall eat up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. Isaiah 41, 14, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Even the redeemed man Jacob was known as a worm. You remember Herod when he stood before the people there in Acts 12 and he gave a great oratory speech and the people gave all sorts of shouts and they said, oh, this is the voice of a God and not a man. What happened to Herod the moment before he dropped dead? You remember? The Scripture says the angel of the Lord smote him because he didn't give glory to God. And then it says he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. He became worm food first, and then he died. So think again now with me about the worm. It is something that is, speaks of decay, of dying, of death, and corruption. The worms feed upon us. And it is our Lord Jesus, my friend, who became a worm for us, treated like a worm. Scorned like a worm. Died like a worm. Thirdly, this figure worm speaks of the, the pains of everlasting hell. Listen to Isaiah 66 verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Do you know what Isaiah is giving a description of there? The torments of everlasting hell. How do I know that? Because Mark quotes it three times in the New Testament, referring to worms that never die. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, and if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better to thee to enter into life, halt into life, than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into the hell, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Noted that three times it's mentioned. And it is here, my friend, that Jesus Christ suffered the agonies of God's eternal wrath for our sins. The just for the unjust. 
And as He did hang there between heaven and earth, God forsook Him. And He condemned Him to die for sin. He took the hell that was ours, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. You see, His soul was made an offering for sin. And that was our sins, not His. He knew no sin. It was our sins that were laid to His account. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. Isaiah further says, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people was He stricken. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. And in that hour, all of the wrath and the hell that our sins deserved, He freely bore for us. He was a worm and no man. There was true travail in that human soul. That was His. And He suffered at that time all the pains of hell and of death and of destruction and wrath that would have been all of ours for our eternity. His offering was so infinite in that sense that it appeased God forever. Can you imagine the intensity then that must have been upon him for all that to be true. And it is. You see, he was a worm and no man. And then lastly, we can't end it there because we have to recognize that God was satisfied with Christ, His Son, in doing all of this. You know, none of this was by accident. This is obvious. This is written a thousand years before all of this took place on the cross. He is the fulfillment of this passage. David is not speaking of himself. He is speaking of Jesus Christ. And it was no accident. This was not out of God's plan and His purposes. But all of this was worked out in the everlasting covenant that is ordered in all things and sure. It's not helter-skelter like our plans may be. It is a covenant. It is a plan that is well-ordered in all things and sure. And yes, God has received that sacrifice and that offering of His Son as full and complete satisfaction for our sins. Thus God raised him from the dead the third day. For he is no longer that worm. But he is our glorious mediator. Having completed in the volume of the book that was written of him. To do God's will. And because this was so. Death and hell could not hold him. The Scripture says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it. It's true, very true. He was a worm and no man for a period of time, but no longer. Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4 tells us, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. A worm and no man for a time, but no longer. Forever and ever. An application this morning of this. First of all, let us look what Christ has done for sinners. He didn't do this for good people. He didn't do this for the righteous. 
He did this for sinners. Wicked, rebellious, God-hating sinners. If that is you this morning, you need to look to Christ. Look at the sin bearer. Look at the one who became a worm for sinners. Trust Him and believe upon Him. Secondly, Christian, I exhort you, no, I command you, look at what He has endured for you. Should we go on in then in our sins? Should we continue to dilly-dally and play with that sin that you know you play with? Should you? Could you? Should we be then enamored, excited, thrilled by what the world can offer? Let me ask you this morning, what has sin done for you? We see what it's done to the Savior. What has it done for you? So yeah, you're right. My big sins did it. No, my friend. Your little sins did that as well. Your unbelief. Your gossip. That did that to Christ. Your lack of conformity to what He says to do. That did that to Christ. What has the world done for you? Has it done what the Savior's done for us? Has it poured out itself to deliver us? What could it ever do in comparison to what Christ has done for us? One of the things I hit hard yesterday as I did preach a very short segment of this. I only had 30 minutes yesterday to preach my sermon. So I condensed quite a bit of it. But one of the things I did bring out pretty hard in the application was self. Self. Boy, we love me, don't we? I love me and you love you. And we love to serve ourselves. Where should it be in this matter? What should I do with self in light of such a message, in light of such love and such grace and of such condescension and such humiliation by our Lord Jesus? What should I do with self? I'll tell you what the Bible says do with it. Crucify it. Kill it. Put it to death. Deny it. And pick up your cross that demonstrated that Christ was a worm and serve Him and serve others. That's what He did. He did this for our sins. Thirdly, this state of humiliation which our Lord endured was for once and once only. He'll never do it again. And when He comes again, He will not return as a worm and no man. He won't be ever again humbled by God or by man. He will come in great power and great majesty. And as Paul relates to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, they're talking about His return. He tells us very plainly, seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. That is how He will come back. He will not come back as a lowly worm, but as the mighty God who will come and judge sinners who have rejected this gospel. And even now, even now, Jesus Christ is exalted and crowned with glory for the very rewards of that humiliation and suffering. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, sinner, you better bow now, or you will be humbled when He returns or when you meet Him in death. If God did so this to His Son, do you honestly think He will spare you? No. No. Fear Him, my friend, who has power both to cast both body and soul into hell forever. Turn from sin. Trust in the mighty work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What a Savior. What a worm for us. Amen.